<laughs> Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, before we begin with our worship service, let me go through a couple announcements. Uh, the first is that our youth are meeting tonight at the Brownleys after the evening service. Um, if you are uh, a woman in our church, there are several opportunities to gather for Bible studies and for uh, circle gatherings, so look at the back of the bulletin for updated details on those things. There is an announcement about the adult Sunday school class starting about 15 minutes early. If you have questions about that, feel free to reach out to Mike Forster. And the Joy Pottery activity is coming up in just a few weeks, so if you haven't yet contacted Midge for that, please do so if you're interested in going to that. Well, we are gathered here to worship God, and thankfully, He, by His Spirit's power, gives us the ability to worship. And so as we take a few moments, as the music plays, ask God to help you worship this morning. Um, take a few moments to pray and lift up your needs before God, and uh, that's just a great way to prepare to worship God. Let's do that now.
I would ask that you stand as the Lord invites and calls us to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 84, verses 1 through 4. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in thy house. They are ever praising thee. Please remain standing and join as we worship in song hymn number two.
Let us pray. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving you thanks for bringing us here at this place, at this designated time. And we pray, O oh God, right now that we in our own hearts, admitting and confessing to you our sinful nature, our selfishness that tends to guide us in our daily lives, we pray, O oh God, that at this time that we would resolve to focus that we would resolve to be here for your glory, that we would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to song, that we would feel compelled to truly pray to the God of the universe, that we would hear the preaching and teaching of your word. I pray a special blessing upon Matt as he delivers today. We thank you for your work in the lives of those who you've called, those here before us today in the past, and we pray for those in the future that you would continue to work as you have, and through your spirit, you would guide the words that you would, again, open our hearts, that we would truly worship you as we seek rest today in a day that is designated in which we find rest and hope in our eternal resurrection with you that you have promised us. For you are worthy to be worshipped for what you have done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And dear God, at this time, we as a body of believers pray to you as you have taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power in the glory forever. Amen. At this time each week, we have an opportunity to collectively confess our faith. And as we have been doing in weeks past, the Apostles' Creed. And I ask you now, Christians, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, um, each statement that we make is, is packed with meaning. It's packed with decades and even hundreds of years of study and debate and learning and when we come across this, these two, or I guess these three words, his only son, we say we believe in God the Father Almighty, mighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, this brings up some questions naturally. Uh, we read in the Gospels, when God says to Jesus, God the Father says to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
we learn that God the Father is in an eternal relationship with God the Son. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, not created. There is a relationship there that has existed before all time and will exist for all eternity between the Father and the Son, and yet there is only one God. And so in this relationship, we see a glimpse of how God sees those who are united to Jesus by faith, how he sees you and me, which is that God is well-pleased in those who put their trust and faith in Christ. So we can take a moment now to go in prayer before God, knowing that he delights in us through Jesus by the power of his Spirit. As we go, as we have this time in prayer, you can speak to God about whatever comes to your mind, whatever is on your heart. You can be praying for the church, for your own life, for your family. Whatever God puts on your mind, I invite you to take some time in silence uh, and in private prayer uh, to do that, to pray with God and be with him. Let's do that together now, and then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning with all the energy that we can muster. And we worship you as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one God. And Father, you have an eternal relationship with your Son that defies our imagination, that we can't really comprehend. And you have loved one another before time existed. And now you bring sinners into that love through the redemption of Jesus applied to us by the Holy Spirit in faith. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would teach us, that you would soften our hearts, so that we learn to love others as you love the Father, and the Father loves you and you love us. Lord Jesus, it hurts to read the words of your Father's love for you as we think about our broken and sin-filled world. There are so many people in this world who live without the knowledge of your delight in them. In the ways we treat one another, it's hard to see sometimes that we have a loving Father who delights in us through his Son, Jesus. We need your love, God, and we need your Spirit's power to receive it and to believe it. God, as we gather here for worship, we pray that you would lead us Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would begin and again to show us how uh, you love us and how you love giving us uh, direction, your word, and a place to worship as your body. Lord, we learned recently of the death of Montavious Goss. God, this is a tragedy, and it should never happen. We pray, God, that you would have mercy on his family, 
on his mother, Tamika, on their friends, and on our community. Lord, you created Montavious. You formed him in his mother's womb, and he carried your image, Father. So again, we pray, have mercy. We pray that you would help that family raise the funds they need for a beautiful funeral service that reminds the, all who attend of the glory of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection. And Lord, we pray for encouragement here in this church in suffering and struggle. You're refining each of us like gold, and the process is painful. It's hard. And as we follow you, we pray that you would help us not to be overwhelmed, but to trust you more and more and to rely on you. We pray, God, that you would supply us and give us people to walk with us. That's one reason why you have given us the church, have formed your church body, is to support and encourage one another. We pray you would do that. God, we worship you this morning. We thank you for gathering us here. We thank you for your word and giving us opportunity to sit as your body and to receive your word again, to be encouraged and challenged. And by your spirit's power, lead us in this. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We'll take up our morning tithes and offerings. And as we have received and continue to receive the grace of God in Christ, we give back through our money. And all things come from God as a blessing to us. So as you have been given to, uh, I ask you to give in return back to God for his kingdom's sake. Let's do that now.
Please pray with me. God, we rely on you for all things, and you will continue to remind us and to teach us to rely on you. So God, as we rely on you to supply all that we need, we rely on you to supply all that we need for this church and for the work that you call us to do. So God, we give you our tithes and offerings for this work, and we pray that as you have led us into the kingdom and that you have called us to your work, that you would supply all that we need. God, we thank you for this time to give. We dedicate this time and this offering to you, to your glory, in your worship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue to worship by singing hymn number five, which is God, my King, thy might, confessing. Let's continue worshiping with hymn number five together. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> On Sunday mornings, I can only get text messages from my wife. By I can tell by the unique vibration. And she just told me that she's watching online because Lila getting sick, but anyway, she said she can hear me singing, which is, uh, <laughs> which might have been the tr- true all of these Sundays, so now I know that um, people are hearing me sing, and uh, I don't know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> okay, 
We are in Mark chapter 6, and I invite you to turn there to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And we'll be reading through verse 30, actually. We see in this passage Jesus sending out the twelve apostles two by two. And then we have the account of John the Baptist's murder and execution. And the way which Mark organizes his gospel is really unique and skillful. And we've seen already in Mark how he'll put two stories together for us to compare and contrast and look at the differences. And there's the, the fancy word for that is also juxtaposition. Mark likes to do that as well as he likes to foreshadow things. He likes to give us hints of what's to come. And if you remember, way back in the beginning of Mark, we get one line about John the Baptist being arrested, and then we don't get any other information. So we're left wondering, what happened to John? We see all of Mark's skillful writing and organization here this morning in this passage. Let's read it together. Um, starting at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he f heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a, on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're taking these two stories together and and ending at verse 30 because that's how I believe God, I'm sorry, Mark wants us to see how these are joined together. In verse 30, the, the apostles report back to Jesus after being sent out before the story of John. And this story of John is a sort of a flashback. It's telling us how John was beheaded and why. And so we're going to look at two points to guide us as we go through this passage. And the first is equipped for the kingdom. How we're equipped for the kingdom and two, the cost of the kingdom. So equipped for the kingdom and the cost of the kingdom. As we're looking at being equipped for the kingdom, uh, and as I was reading this passage, it reminded me of the opening scene of the movie that came out this past year on Netflix called All Quiet on the Western Front. And this opening scene in this movie is based on a book that was written in the 1920s, almost 100 years ago. It's a very famous book about World War I. And the opening scene is really fascinating. Uh, We see hundreds of young men who are eager and excited uh, and look really nice and dressed up. They're they're excited to join the war effort. They're excited to go to the front lines. So they get in line to get their uniforms one by one. And it zooms in on one young man who is getting his uniform from his supervisor. And he notices on the uniform that there's someone else's name on it. And so he says, there's something wrong here. You need to take this uniform back. It's for someone else. And the supervisor takes the uniform, rips off the name, and gives it back to the young man. And then it cuts to another man who gets his uniform he notices there's a bullet hole in the uniform and is simply confused at why he was getting a uniform with a bullet hole in it. The dread and the horror, the, the likely end of these young men is always present with the viewer. We know where this story is going. It's going to show us the death and the deaths of these young men. And so we see in the next scene truckloads of uniforms being dropped off that are bloody, that are torn up, that have all kinds of damage to them. It cuts to the factory where there's hundreds of seamstresses repairing these uniforms. And the movie is showing us both these eager, young, inexperienced men who are excited to join the war effort paired with this horror of what we know will come about for them. World War I, we know, had about 17 million people die in it. Four million people died on the Western Front alone. And I think what I give this example to you, because I think that's what Mark is doing in this passage. 
As Jesus sends out the 12 apostles two by two, he gives us the story of John the Baptist interjected right in the middle to show us the likely end to not just the apostles, but to those who follow Jesus in a way. Jesus' apostles are probably eager. They're, they're maybe even excited to do all these things that Jesus is giving them a power and authority to do. And yet, they're being sent out with a sober reality that following Jesus may cost them their very lives. In verses 7 to 13, we see this part of the passage with the apostles. Apostle means uh, to be the, a sent one, to be sent and based off of the information we have on Jesus' disciples up to this point, we should be concerned for them. They have not shown us their expertise. They have not shown us that they even understand Jesus' message or his identity. And yet Jesus is sending them out to do this incredible work by his Spirit's power. In verse 8 we read, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So not only is Jesus sending out these men who were unprepared, who were likely inexperienced, he is sending them out without a lot of luggage. He's sending them out in reliance upon him, reliance upon God. They are to pray and to expect that God would provide for their everyday needs. He sends them out in total reliance, not just for their physical needs, but he sends them out in reliance upon his message. They don't have anything. They have nothing to offer anyone except what comes from Christ. I found it really interesting. One commentator named James Edwards pointed out how the things that Jesus sends his apostles with are strikingly similar to what God gives and tells his people to have ready in the Exodus. When God frees his people from Egypt, this is what he tells them as they enjoy the Passover lamb. He says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. What this tells me is that Jesus is saying to his apostles, you're about to go out and do work that you're going to be, one, you're going to be moving around a lot. You're going to be going out in haste. It also tells us that this is a kind of second exodus, that this is what the exodus was pointing towards, that there would be the true king, who is coming to free his people, to bring in the kingdom of God, to free people not only from physical bondage and slavery, but slavery to sin, to bring them into new life. And so the apostles were on the move, and they were packing not very much. And in verse 11, this is also significant, and it's easy to pass over and not really think too long about, but in verse 11 we read, If in any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony 
against them. This is fascinating and challenging because Jesus was Jewish, is Jewish, and he says any place that you go that rejects you, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. So Jesus is saying even if you go, and his apostles were going to Jewish people. He is saying if they do not believe your message, you will categorize them as as heathens, as unbelievers. When we read in Paul, Paul says the, in Romans, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so Jesus is beginning to show us that what matters and how you become part of God's kingdom is not through your birth, but it's through faith and repentance. And this is, extraordinary for Jesus to be teaching. It would be unheard of for this to be the case. And this act of shaking off the dust wasn't an act of damnation, as if they're saying this household, this family is, is unable to be saved. To shake off the dust meant a warning to this family. It was a warning that if they continue in disbelief and in unrepentance, that this warning would come about, that they would meet the wrath of God. The message that the apostles went out with is really simple, which almost seems like we want more from Mark here. Like, what were they actually preaching and teaching about? They, Mark says that their message was to repent. And as we hear frequently, repent means to literally turn your back and to go in a new direction. So to repent means to turn your back on your sin and to follow God in obedience. And isn't it incredible how difficult that one word is? To repent. I'm almost 35 years old, and when I hear repentance come out of my own mouth and from my heart, and when I hear it from someone else, it is one of the most amazing things that God does in this life. When his spirit works in us to bring about repentance, it is a gift. It is a work of God's spirit. It's an act of worship and love to God. And so we read, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus equipped his apostles with his kingdom work. He equipped them for his kingdom work. And he hasn't stopped with just his apostles. But where they are sent out and when they are sent out, we get this story of John the Baptist, of course. This is where the momentum comes to a, a halt. The work of the kingdom comes with a cost. There is the cost of the kingdom, which is the second point. John is beheaded by Herod while in prison at the request of his wife, who had a grudge against John. John the Baptist criticized Herod for taking Herodias, his brother's wife, as his wife. John likely said that this was sinful, it was wrong, it was unwise. And no one likes to be told that what they're doing or what they've done is wrong. 
unless God in his common grace shows them the, their foolishness or the Holy Spirit brings them to acknowledge their sin before God. So John's message about the kingdom, about the Messiah, about repentance and sin, were not held back by political affiliation. John knew every human being had a moral responsibility before God. We're accountable for our sinful actions. And we get the sense that John was not afraid to call sin into account. No matter who you were, John was going to, in a way, say it like it is, say it like it was, no matter how it would affect his well-being or his popularity. In this way, John the Baptist knew what it was to take up his cross when following Jesus. So much of John's death mirrors the death of Jesus. John and Jesus were both executed by political leaders who gave in to social pressures. They're both innocent victims of the political powers of their day. And Jesus says John is the greatest person ever born of a, of a woman, and yet he meets one of the most, uh, one of the most horrible deaths that we can imagine. He's beheaded in prison because of a man's physical attraction to a woman at a party. John had his eyes fixed on what lay ahead. He knew that following the Messiah would be forfeiting his life. He served the king in the shadow of death. He had his eyes fixed on the cross. And his life would eventually point forward to the death of the only truly innocent one, which is Jesus, who was greater than he. And so Jesus sends his apostles out to do his kingdom work. He provides for them. He calls them to rely on him, not just for their physical needs, but for their spiritual needs. And he sends them out into the shadow of death. Today... I have two applications from this. Today, God sends his people out for his kingdom work in a similar way. He will provide for what you need physically and spiritually, and he will grow in you and give you a heart that will grow in reliance upon him for everything. He'll give you the words to say, he'll provide for your needs, and he gives us this message of good news, which is to repent, to repent of our sin, to receive the forgiveness of God in Christ, bought by his blood on the cross. And God provides everything. He provides this message that we believe and share. He provides our good works. He provides our love. He provides repentance. He provides faith. And he calls us to rely on him for all these things. And so we see in this passage that we're to rely on God, that he's going to provide everything that we need. And yet, crucially, he provides us for what we need each, each day. The apostles are sent out not with what they need for the year ahead, 
or for their whole work of ministry, but for what they need for that day so that they grow in reliance and dependence on Christ. In a similar way, God provides us for what we need for today, not for the next year or for the next month or week. He provides you what you need physically, spiritually for today to serve him, to persevere in suffering. And so to serve Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom, you are sent out to serve in the kingdom with clear eyes, the clear vision with a sobering reality that you're being sent out into the shadow of death. This message is for the church that Mark is writing to, right? So the gospel of Mark was written to a particular group of people, to a church in time that was suffering for following Jesus, suffering in all kinds of different ways. But the message that Mark was writing to them is the same for us, that as we come to know Jesus and as he sends us out, as he says in Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations. We read in John how Jesus prays for his people as they are in this world. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is sending out his people into this world. We are part of this world spreading the kingdom of God. And following Jesus means giving up our lives to him. The sobering reality of this passage is that our lives might be taken unjustly. They might be taken from us even randomly, it seems. John the Baptist was spared no dignity in his death. The only dignity he received was in his burial. And now we can ask, will we be beheaded one day for being Christian, for following Jesus? Probably not, but we, we never say never. We don't know what's going to happen. Suffering for Jesus, for those who live in the United States, comes in a lot of different ways. As we follow Christ and as we seek to be obedient to his word, we may lose our job, lose a close friend, lose our marriage, our comfort. God will continue to teach his people to have an open hand about the things that we want and even the things that we think we need. So as you rely on God, he will equip you for this life, for the life that he has for you, and he'll walk with you in the shadow of death. The greatness of John, again, was met with one of the most pitiful deaths. His head was paraded around on a platter as a prize, and soon Jesus would follow in John's steps. And his disciples and his followers after him. He would be given up by a government official. If you remember the story of how Jesus is given up to win the approval of his political subjects. Right? So Jesus is given away to be killed, to be murdered, and the guilty man is set free 
wise and innocent and powerful and loving Jesus is sent to die on a cross, to be hung naked on a wooden cross, to have nails driven through his arms and his feet. And he would do this out of love. He would be humiliated and shamed for you. And if Jesus would do this for you and for me, how could we not give him our lives? We know we're sinful people. We're prone to sin. We're prone to mistakes. We're prone to think that we don't have what we need to serve God. But as Jesus showed us with his apostles, they didn't have what they needed. They didn't have the experience or the expertise, and yet he provided everything that they needed as they relied on him. And now he calls you and me to rely on him today. In Proverbs chapter 17, we read that the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And in this proverb, we see how Jesus is in this business of not just saving people, but forming a heart in them that will persevere through suffering in service to him. So as you rely on him more and more, be assured that he is strengthening you even in suffering. Even when it feels like a furnace or a crucible, God is sending out his church to be in total reliance upon him for all that they need. He is sending out his people into the valley of the shadow of death to look towards the cross. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 4 to end. This is Peter's encouragement to the church, similar to the people that Mark is writing to. Peter says, Beloved, and this is 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your soul to Jesus this morning, today, this week. And rejoice and be faithful to him while doing good. Let's pray. God, it is great encouragement that you use people who don't have it all together who are not the smartest people in the world, who are not equipped for the task as we often think we aren't. God, you use weak people. You use all people 
to serve you for your glory, to show just how much you love sinners, to show people how your kingdom is spreading and is at work. So God, as you send your people out this morning, we pray that you would grow in us hearts that rely on you, that we would not be ashamed when we rely on you, but that that would be our natural reaction to living in this world. God, grow in us hearts of, of prayer, of asking for all that we need from you on a day-to-day basis. Lord, we ask that when we serve you, that we would not be surprised by suffering, but that we would see your hand in it as you refine our hearts, as you refine us for your work and for your glory. Lord, as you send us out into the shadow of death, would you make us courageous? Would you give us people to encourage us? Would you encourage us by your spirit? Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and in the life of this church. And we pray you would be glorified in all that we say and do this morning in this worship service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for our final hymn this morning in response to God's grace, his love for us. I invite you to stand to sing hymn number 30, which is our God, our help in ages past. Let's stand and sing hymn 30.
Receive God's blessing from Philippians and respond in faith with your amen. May God supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.